Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is episode 22, United States versus Lopez. This is a 1995 case where the federal government argued that the Commerce Clause gave them the power to regulate the mood inside of public schools. I am not kidding. Unfortunately, I'm not. Thankfully, that argument was rejected, but by a mere five to four vote in the United States Supreme Court. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on Twitter, at BlueCarp, and on Facebook.com, slash BlueCarp. And on my blog, you might guess it, BlueCarp.net. I would love to hear from you. So today we're going to discuss this U.S. v. Lopez case. Just a reminder, and if you haven't read a case, your opinion is based on what other people are telling you. And that includes me on this podcast telling you about these cases. I've read these cases, and I'm giving you my impression of them. I'm quoting from them, trying to back it up. And one of the reasons I started this is because of the vast number of people who hold passionate, almost sometimes indignant opinions about cases they've clearly not read. I don't think somebody should be passionate about a case, about an opinion that they haven't read. To be passionate about something like a Supreme Court opinion I humbly suggest, requires more than reading someone else's opinion of it or hearing someone else's take on it on the news or on a talk radio show. It's like if someone was describing a picture to you. They say somebody's standing in the Louvre in front of the Mona Lisa and you're back home in Colorado. The person is describing it to you and you've never seen it. Now, you'll get the idea that the person who's describing it to you likes it or doesn't like it. But you will not get your own opinion because you're not looking at it. You haven't seen it yourself. Another example is like wine. Let's say you are a wine aficionado, of which I am not. And you read a review of a particular wine in a magazine. The reviewer loved it, gave it a really high rating. Would you tell a friend that you love that wine? No, because you haven't tried it. You wouldn't say that you liked it. You would say probably that, yeah, I read a real nice review of that. That might be good. But you're not going to know until you try it. Same thing with the restaurant. You wouldn't tell a friend you loved a restaurant that you hadn't been to, not even if you read a great review. So why do people say, full of indignant passion, that, for example, Citizens United is a horrible case when it's clear they haven't glanced at the first page much less actually read the entire thing. So with all due respect, that person is a moron. That person is a useful idiot. Let's all strive not to be morons. And in this day and age, that may be asking too much. I hope not. Now, some people just think the Constitution is a bad idea. Their movement to repeal the Electoral College is a good example of that. Beto O'Rourke, AOC, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, they don't care what the Constitution says. Again, they, they see it as a hurdle to the implementation of their awesome ideas they have to centrally plan the economy and make everything better for everyone else. They see the Constitution as full of hurdles to implementation of their great ideas. So they want to get rid of those hurdles or lower them as low as they can. And they don't care how. And Supreme Court decisions are a great way to do that. Much easier than actually amending the Constitution. And the feds tried to do it in this case. United States v. Lopez. So what are we dealing with here? What are the basics? United States v. Alonzo D. Lopez Jr. It's the first United States Supreme Court case since the New Deal, since FDR, to set limits or any limit on Congress power under the Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, to regulate activity. So it's the first case since the New Deal to say, hey, 
That's not cool. You can't do that. The Constitution isn't going to let you do that under the Commerce Clause. So in this case, the Supreme Court held that the Federal Gun-Free School Zones Act of 1990 uh, banned possession of handguns near schools. They said that act was unconstitutional because possessing a handgun is not commerce. Now, a little bit of this Federal Gun-Free School Zones Act of 1990, more feel-good virtue signaling nonsense without any legitimate authority. States have such acts. States have such laws on their books federal government did not need to do this, but they did because they're virtue signaling and they don't care what the constitution says. So the act was introduced in the U.S. Senate by Joe Biden, Democrat, but who signed it into law? George H.W. Bush, a Republican. You know how I feel about the difference between the two parties. This is another example of how little actual meaningful difference there is. So who was Lopez and what did he do? Alfonso D. Lopez, Jr., 12th grade student, senior in high school, and he carried a concealed handgun into his high school. He was charged with violating the Gun-Free School Zones Act, which forbids, quote, any individual knowingly to possess a firearm at a place that he knows is a school zone. The federal district court denied his motion to dismiss the indictment on the grounds that Congress has no legitimate authority under the Constitution and the enumerated powers to make possession of a gun near a school or in a school illegal because it does not affect interstate commerce. So he lost at the trial court. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in his favor. And then the U.S. Supreme Court decided here, and that's where we are talking about it right now. Congress and the United States Department of Justice argued that the Commerce Clause gave the feds the authority to pass this law. And people wonder why there's any there's a lack of respect for the law. It's because of things like this, when the government thinks it can do whatever it wants, makes up crap to justify it. And this is just one example, because we've talked about eminent domain, uh, abuse in the Kelo decision, got civil asset forfeiture going on, where the cops become nothing more than robbers. They take people's private property without even the necessity of filing charges against someone. And this nonsense here in this Gun-Free Zones Act is just another example of the federal government who thinks it has no limit to what it can do. And this case has got nothing to do with whether or not one might think gun-free zones are a good idea or not. It's got nothing to do with that zero. It has everything to do with the idea of a federal government limited by specific enumerated powers listed in the Constitution. Congress has to have authority to act or its act is illegitimate. There is no legitimate, honest argument that the Commerce Clause authorizes a gun ban around schools. None. And while it's good the Supreme Court rejected that argument, it's absolutely frightening that it was only a five to four decision. One more justice the other way, and this nonsense would have been declared valid. Whatever faint breath of the Tenth Amendment and the concept of enumerated federal powers, whatever faint breath was left would have been finally smothered with a pillow, just snuffed out, killed. As it is now, that faint, tiny breath is still there. So who wrote this opinion? The majority and the 5-4 majority that ruled this federal gun-free safety school zones act or whatever unconstitutional was written by Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who was a Reagan appointee, joined by Sandra Day O'Connor, also Reagan, Antonin Scalia, also Reagan, Anthony Kennedy, also Reagan, Clarence Thomas, George H.W. Bush, who ironically signed this bill into law because presidents have, in effect, just abandoned whatever responsibility that they have when it comes to deciding and signing bills, deciding whether or not they're going to sign a bill. The president is supposed to go, you know what, I don't think this is constitutional. He's not supposed to say, well, Congress passed it. I like it. Therefore, I'll sign it. Or Congress passed it. I'm not sure about it. I'll sign it and let the courts figure it out. No, that is an abdication of responsibility. If the president doesn't think it's constitutional, he's not supposed to sign it. He's supposed to veto it. Just like people in the legislature, if they don't think it's con uh, constitutional, they're not supposed to vote for it. But they do. They go, ah, I think this is a good idea. Screw the constitutionality of it. I don't, I don't even give a crap. They'll figure that out later. 
later. And that is an absolute abdication of responsibility as well. Kennedy wrote separate concurrence joined by O'Connor, and Thomas also wrote a separate concurrence. It was a long opinion, correctly questioning the court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence. It's the entire history of it, just about, in essence, saying it had gone too far, and he's absolutely correct. Now, the main dissent was written by Justice Stephen Breyer, appointed by Bill Clinton. He was joined by John P. Stevens, who was nominated by a Republican, Gerald Ford, David Souter, also nominated by George H.W. Bush, the president who signed this nonsense into law. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the fourth judge justice in the dissent who was appointed by Bill Clinton. Souter and Stevens also wrote separate dissents. So seven of nine of the justices at this time in the Supreme Court were Republicans. So the entire majority nominated by Republicans and half the dissent. So two of the four dissenters also nominated by Republicans, whatever that's worth. So Rehnquist starts off with the conclusion, basically, they usually, it seems like a recurring pattern. They'll say, this is what we hold. And then they explain it, and then they tell you at the end, this is what we hope. So Rehnquist wrote, In the Gun-Free School Zones Act of 1990, Congress made it a federal offense for any individual knowingly to possess a firearm at a place that the individual knows or has reasonable cause to know is a school zone. The act neither regulates a commercial activity nor contains a requirement that the possession of the firearm be connected in any way to interstate commerce. We hold that the act exceeds the authority of Congress to regulate commerce among the several states. And that's the way the Constitution is written. I, I just don't get this notion that so many people are so adamant about that there's such a huge difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. And the history of this case and the people that voted that it's constitutional, nominated by Republicans, help demonstrate this. They're slightly different. People talk about pendulums swinging back and forth. You know, in four years, it'll be the Republicans. And then it swings all the way back over here to the Democratic side. But it's not a pendulum. Whenever I hear the word pendulum, I think of the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Pit and the Pendulum and the Vincent Price adaptation of that in the movie, where there's this huge blade-shaped pendulum swinging back and forth in this dungeon, getting lower and lower, and it's going to, like, eventually cut this guy in two pieces, right? Slowly. It's pretty horrible. But it's huge, right? In this dungeon. Back and forth. Slowly. Huge. Makes a lot of effort to go all the way across from one side of the room to the other. But that's not an accurate description of what happens when Republicans and Democrats change power. It's more like an infant being adjusted a few inches from his mother's left heat to the right. It's not in yards. It's not in meters, it's in inches, and they're both sucking nourishment from someone else. This is an important thing to note in the case. From Rehnquist, the grant of comprehensive legislative power over certain areas of the nation in the Constitution, when read in conjunction with the rest of the Constitution, further conforms that Congress was not ceded plenary or absolute authority over the whole nation. This is apparently a radical foreign notion to most of the government, yet it's the very foundation of the institution of which they are a member in Congress and the entire point of the document they have sworn to uphold. And it's, frankly, it's, I mean, it's insane. So some more details about the case, more details about Mr. Lopez. So it's March 10th, 1992. Lopez, 12th grade student, arrived at Edison High School in San Antonio, Texas. Had a concealed 38 caliber handgun and five bullets. Acting upon an anonymous tip, school authorities confronted Mr. Lopez. He admitted he was carrying the firearm. He was arrested and charged under Texas law. Now get this, it was Texas law first with the firearm possession on school premises. The next day, the Texas charges were dismissed because federal agents came in and charged him with violating this gun-free school zones act. So there was already a state law in place. The federal law was redundant. And this is just like this, there's a proposed federal animal cruelty law. It's a bipartisan bill. Okay, it has been introduced to make animal cruelty a federal felony. Democrat Representative Ted Deutsch and Republican Representative Byrne Buchanan have brought forth this Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act, the PACTA. Now, all 50 states, all of them, 
already make cruelty to animals a crime. So these congressmen and the ones that are supporting this are just grandstanding, showing their constitutional illiteracy, and which, of course, will probably win them votes. So back back to Mr. Lopez. So indicted in federal court after he was already charged in state court, and they dismissed the state charges because they're going to go after him in federal court. Charged with knowing possession of a firearm at a school zone in violation of this federal act. It's section 922Q of the act. He moved to dismiss it, alleging it's beyond the power of Congress to legislate control over our public schools. That's exactly how we phrased it. He said, you guys should dismiss this because it's unconstitutional as it's beyond the power of Congress to legislate control over our public schools. The district court denied that. And listen to this. He said that the statute is a constitutional exercise of Congress' well-defined power to regulate activities in and affecting commerce and the business of elementary, middle, and high school affects interstate commerce. That's just shockingly obscene is what that is. He was convicted after his motion to dismiss was rejected. He was sentenced to six months in prison and then two years of supervised release. So we're not talking years. We're talking six months. Substantial deprivation of personal liberty. So again, a stop and let that soak in. The district court judge said that the business of elementary, middle, and high schools affects interstate commerce. That means that Congress, the feds, can do anything they want to local schools, completely take over local school boards. In essence, I mean, they could tell them what they have to do. And what's truly frightening is the number of people in this country who think that's a good idea. And four of the Supreme Court justices in this case thought it was a good idea. Well, thankfully, the Fifth Circuit agreed with Lopez, said his conviction was unconstitutional because Congress does not have power to legislate schools under the Commerce Clause. The Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, and they agreed with the Fifth Circuit. So they threw out his, his conviction. Rehnquist says, and I'll quote, We start with first principles. The Constitution creates a federal government of enumerated powers, as James Madison wrote. The powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Let's stop right there for a second. I guarantee you that less than half, maybe less than a third of people in Congress have any idea what that means. They have no idea. Zero idea. And state legislatures may be worse. I bet they are. I could at least respect someone with the intellectual honesty to say, you know, I think the framework set up by the Constitution is a bad idea and I want to repeal it. Instead of pretending that these bills, like this Gun-Free School Zone Act, are somehow a legitimate exercise of authority under the Constitution, because that's absurd. I mean, they've been getting away with it since Wickard v. Filburn and even before that to some degree. But it's not an honest argument. Just say we don't like the Constitution. Don't say that we can regulate what happens in local schools because that's interstate commerce. I mean, come on. Nobody can respect that. That's nonsense. It's embarrassing for these constitutionally illiterate lawmakers. They don't even know enough to be embarrassed. The Supreme Court continued, Rehnquist writing, those powers which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. He's quoting the Federalist, uh, number 45. This constitutionally mandated division of authority was adopted by the framers to ensure protection of our fundamental liberties. Just as the separation and independence of the coordinate branches of the federal government, it means the legislative, judicial, and executive, those different branches serve to prevent the accumulation of, of excessive power in any one branch of the federal government, a healthy balance of power between the states and the federal government will reduce the risk of tyranny and abuse from either front. Supreme Court, Chief Justice Rehnquist, quoting Federalist Papers about the balance of power between the federal government and the state government. You might hear many in Congress and elsewhere go, balance of power between the states and the federal government. What? That's nonsense. 
Everyone knows that whatever the feds do is the supreme law of the land, and the states can do nothing about it. And of course, I'm mocking that. I'm being facetious. But that attitude is held by a lot of people with law degrees. And I wish, again, they would just admit they don't like those ideas of the states being anything more than a political subdivision of the federal government. And, and it's a charade. It's a farce. And the, and the smart ones know it. The rest aren't smart enough to care. Now, the balance of power between the states and the federal government supports this idea of state nullification, which I've talked about briefly before. The states can tell the feds no. The law you passed is not a legitimate exercise of your constitutional power, and we're not comply with it. We will nullify, we will ignore your attempt at usurping our power under the Constitution. The northern states did this with the Fugitive Slave Act before the Civil War started. So the notion that state nullification and federalism itself is nothing but a racist front is absurd on its face. The federal government is not any more benign than any state government. So the feds gave us the Fugitive Slave Act. The feds and FDR gave us Japanese internment. And states should have said, hell no, we're not going to cooperate with this unconstitutional treatment of our fellow Americans. The Lopez Court discusses the history of the Commerce Clause. They refer to a case, the Gibbons case. They say the Gibbons Court acknowledge that limitations on the commerce power are inherent in the very language of the Commerce Clause, referring to a case written by Chief Justice John Marshall back in 1824. Lopez Court then lists examples of intra-state commerce that Congress could not legitimately regulate, at least back in the day they couldn't. A 1853 Supreme Court case saying that a state-created steamboat monopoly couldn't be regulated by Congress because it involved wholly internal commerce within a state. An 1888 case upheld a state prohibition on the manufacture of intoxicating liquors. It was a state prohibition in 1888 because the commerce power, quote, does not comprehend the purely internal domestic commerce of a state, which is carried on between man and man within a state or between different parts of the same state. Contrast that with, with what happened some, what, 60 years later in Wickard v. Filburn, which we talked about in episode 5, where the New Deal Court said that activity that was neither interstate nor commerce could be regulated under the Interstate Commerce Clause. Wickard, I mean, that's a joke. I mean, and everything that followed it in that same line of cases is a joke. Mere pretext for amending the Constitution to allow Congress to do almost anything at once. Except in this Lopez case, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't ban guns near schools because that stretched the joke too far even for the Supreme Court. So back to the court's discussion of the history of the Commerce Clause, it mentions a 1935 case. The Supreme Court noted that if Congress could regulate anything, even if it wasn't interstate commerce, quote, there would be virtually no limit to the federal power. And for all practical purposes, we should have a completely centralized government. And they're right. Wickard came along seven years after that and basically did just that, gave us uh, an almost completely centralized government, and it's just gotten worse since then. And some people think I'm exaggerating when I say the Wickard Supreme Court said activity that is neither interstate nor commerce can be regulated as interstate commerce. And I wish I was exaggerating, but the court here in Lopez quotes Wickard, and this is exactly where it says that in slightly different language, quote, even if Apelli's activity, that's the farmer in Wickard v. Filburn, again, episode five for more details on it, even if the activity be local, and though it may be not regarded as commerce, it may still be reached by Congress. So that's exactly what they're saying in that sentence. The Wicker Court repealed the limitation on congressional power in the Constitution with that sentence. And in that sentence, the case emboldened those in favor of emasculating the states, giving whatever power they might still have to the federal government, and to argue now that the atmosphere in public schools affects interstate commerce and gives Congress the authority to tell local schools how they must be regulated. Rehnquist continues, tries to rein that in, and he does. They do rein it in a little bit, and, and he says specifically, even these modern-era precedents, like Wickard, which have expanded congressional power under the Commerce Clause, confirm that this power is subject to outer limits. Progressives everywhere, including the four dissenters in this case, exclaim, damn it, 
There shouldn't be any outer limits to Congress's power. But fortunately, they're at least setting it way out there. It's way, the limit's way out there, but at least it's some limit. Rehnquist notes another Supreme Court case, an old one, where the commerce power, quote, must be considered in the light of our dual system of government, federal government and state government, and may not be extended so as to embrace effects upon interstate commerce so indirect and so remote that to embrace them in view of our complex society would effectually obliterate the distinction between what is national and what is local and create a completely centralized government. Again, that's the concern. The whole idea is not to have a completely centralized government. But when the Congress passes laws like this that affect local schools, that's exactly what they're doing. They are usurping local power in violation of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, which say that if the power is not listed in the Constitution, most of which of those powers are listed in Article One, Section 8, then the states get to do it, not the federal government. That's the entire point of the enumerated powers, the entire point of the Constitution. But make no mistake, a completely centralized government is the express goal of politicians like Bernie and AOC and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. Anyone who wants to repeal the Electoral College, Beta O'Rourke, and many more. They want the states to become mere political subdivisions of the federal government, which have, who have to do whatever the centralized government in D.C. tells them. That's exactly what they want. And they're getting closer and closer to it. This is one of the few cases that put some kind of limit on that. So Rehnquist distinguishes Lopez, this present case about the kid with the gun in San Antonio, from Wickard. Rehnquist says, even Wickard, which is perhaps the most far-reaching example of Commerce Clause authority over intrastate activity, involved economic activity in a way that the possession of a gun in a school zone does not. The act is a criminal statute that by its terms has nothing to do with commerce or any sort of economic enterprise, however broadly one might define those terms. Rehnquist continued on, the government, the federal government, concedes that neither the statute nor its legislative history contains express congressional findings regarding the effects upon interstate commerce of gun possession in a school zone. And in essence, what they're saying here is we don't care about any constitutional justification for the laws we want to forcibly impose on our subjects in the states. It should be so because we say it's so. So don't bother us with constitutional justifications. We're going to make some crap up, okay? Just rubber stamp it like you have for the past 50 years. Rehnquist continues, The government's, federal government's, essential contention is that we, the Supreme Court, may determine here that the statute is valid because possession of a firearm in a local school zone does indeed substantially affect interstate commerce. Now, how they can say that with a straight face is amazing to me, but it gets worse. Rehnquist goes on, the government, the federal government, also argues that the presence of guns in schools poses a substantial threat to the educational process by threatening the learning environment. This is what I was talking about, about how the mood in a classroom, it is argued, can be regulated under the interstate commerce laws. I'm at a loss. So the substantial threat to the educational process by threatening the learning environment, a handicapped educational process in turn will result in a less productive citizenry that in turn would have an adverse effect on the nation's economic well-being. It's, it's obscene what they're, the sophistry that they are employing. What they're saying, the atmosphere of purported fear in a public classroom can be regulated pursuant to the Interstate Commerce Clause because if kids are scared or uncomfortable, they're not going to learn as much, and then later on they won't be as productive. Now, the people making this argument know it's complete shite. They just want the Supreme Court to say Congress can do whatever it wants. That, in fact, Congress does have plenary or absolute power over the rest of the country, over every state, over every local jurisdiction. That's what they want. The court continues. Under the government's national productivity reasoning, the federal government, Congress could relate any activity 
that it found was related to the economic productivity of individual citizens. Family law, including marriage, divorce, and child custody, for example. Hey, why not? Let's have the feds dictate family law, child custody for everyone. Let's go to federal court for those issues. We don't need state courts. Let's just have the feds do it all. Come on. And that's what some people basically they want. Hey, why not? Rehnquist goes on and tells you why not. Under the theories that the federal government presents in support of the statute, it is difficult to perceive any limitation on federal power, even in areas such as criminal law enforcement or education, where states historically have been the sovereign. Thus, if we were to accept the government's arguments, we are hard-pressed to posit any activity by an individual that Congress is without power to regulate. He goes on. If Congress can, pursue it to its Commerce Clause power, regulate activities that adversely affect the learning environment, then it also can regulate the educational process directly. Congress could determine that a school's curriculum has a significant effect on the extent of classroom learning. As a result, Congress could mandate a federal curriculum for local and secondary schools because what is taught in local schools has a significant effect on classroom learning, and that in turn has a substantial effect on interstate commerce. All right, so Rehnquist just nailed it right there, nailed the entire problem. And again, but make no mistake, that's exactly what a whole hell of a lot of people want to do. Rehnquist talks about this, the dissent a little bit and, and answers to them. He says, under the dissent's rationale, Congress could just as easily look at child rearing as falling on the commercial side of the line because it provides a valuable service, namely to equip children with the skills they need to survive in life and more specifically in the workplace. Rejecting that notion, he goes on, the Commerce Clause authority, although broad, does not include the authority to regulate each and every aspect of local schools. But why that's controversial? Well, I can I can understand it because people want the federal government to have control over everything, regardless of what the Constitution says. Back to Rehnquist and the majority in this case, he quotes Chief Justice Marshall in McCullough v. Maryland. The federal government is acknowledged by all to be one of enumerated powers. The principle that it can exercise only the powers granted to it is now universally admitted. Again, he's quoting McCullough v. Maryland, and we talked about that in episode six. That might have been universally admitted in 1819, but now it's more accurate to say it's almost universally ignored. So, closing the opinion, Rehnquist says, The possession of a gun in a local school zone is no sense an economic activity that might, through repetition elsewhere, substantially affect any sort of interstate commerce. Respondent, Mr. Lopez, was a local student at a local school. There's no indication that he had recently moved in interstate commerce, and there's no requirement in the statute that his possession of the firearm have any concrete tie to interstate commerce. The broad language in our earlier opinions has suggested the possibility of additional expansion of congressional power under the Commerce Clause. But we decline here to proceed any further. To do so would require us to conclude that the Constitution's enumeration of powers does not presuppose something not enumerated, and that there will never be a distinction between what is truly national and what is truly local. This we are unwilling to do. There you have it. It's the first case since the New Deal that did not rubber stamp Congress power to do whatever the hell it wanted to do. And they just barely limited it at five to four. I'm BK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 22, United States v. Lopez. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holla at me with your comments again, Twitter at BlueCarp, Facebook.com slash BlueCarp, and on my blog, BlueCarp.net. Government is not a tool of liberation. It's a tool of oppression. Freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.